Please be seated. We are now in the ninth week of our message series, When You Pray, and today we're taking the second half of something you probably thought last week we should have done all together, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But I separated it for a reason, and there you'll see on the screen, deliver us from, and the question might be today to start, deliver us from what? Deliver us from what? And the reason being, I'm going to get to it in just a moment. Now, most of us know what it means to deliver. You know, deliver means to rescue from or to snatch from. But deliver from what? Well, it's either evil or the evil one. Now, if you use the old King James Version of the Bible, which some people believe that's the language of heaven... Probably it's probably closer to where you get to heaven someday. God will say, Buenos dias, como estad? But who knows what language he'll be speaking in heaven. But the King James uses the word evil, but deliver us from evil. But most modern translations translate it, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, so are we to be praying to be delivered from evil in general, bad stuff, or are we to be praying for specific deliverance from Satan and his power? Now, in one sense, there's not much difference between those two. But there is something to be said for actually translating this, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the reason I say we should probably do it that way is because this, when this Greek verb, deliver, is used with this certain preposition, from, it almost always means to deliver from a specific person and not from some sort of abstract idea or thing like evil. As we're going to see in Matthew 4, you know, Jesus was personally tempted not by evil, he was tempted by the evil one. So in this context, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, I think he's warning his disciples not of evil in general, but of the arch enemy of all believers, and that is of Satan and of his power. Therefore, maybe the best way to understand this petition today is this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, snatch us, save us from Satan and every evil scheme that he would be out there trying to use against us. Now, if you had your Bible and you had a place to make notes right where it says, and deliver us from evil, you might want to write down 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Now, many of you probably remember that Bible verse from your youth or confirmation days. It says, be self-controlled and alert, or I think King James says, be sober and vigilant for your enemy, your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking for juicy Lutherans to devour. Well, it doesn't really say Lutherans, but, you know, he's looking for someone to devour. So when you pray, lead us not into temptation, you are expressing your own weakness in the face of the trials and difficulties of life. But when you pray, but deliver us from the evil one, 
you declare your confidence in God's mighty power. See, the first half of that petition is all about your weakness. The second half is all about God's power. Now, to say that is to raise a question. And the question is this, is this a prayer for cowards? Is this a prayer for people who are too scared or too frightened to do spiritual warfare? I mean, is this a prayer for people who want, don't want anything to do with the devil? And by the way, I should preface something. Do you realize that something like anywhere from four to six out of ten people who attend Christian churches Sunday after Sunday do not really believe in a personal devil? I, that includes pastors. That scares me. The devil doesn't have to worry about them anymore. I mean, he's got them. Hook, line, and hoof. I mean, he's, he's got them. Is this a prayer, though, for people who are afraid to do spiritual warfare? Let me ask you answer that question by asking how to do something terrible. I'm going to answer the question by asking another question. Was Jesus a coward? No. Matthew 26 says that when they went to the Garden of Eden, remember, Monday, Thursday, Jesus knelt, and what did he do? He begged God for the cup to pass away from him. The Bible says he prayed with loud cries and tears to God to be delivered from that which was set before him. Now, he was the Son of God, yet in the midst of that trial and temptation, he did not boast of his power. The prayer recorded in the Bible is not, Oh God, I'm ready to go. Oh God, I'm strong. Oh God, I'm pumped up. I'll crawl up on that cross and I'll die. That was not the prayer. On that night, he cried out to God for help. Now, I might ask this question too. On what, when was the victory actually won? I would suggest to you that the victory of Calvary was won on Thursday night before Judas ever planted that betrayer's kiss on the cheek of Jesus. It was before any spike was ever nailed into the, into the palm or wrists of Jesus. The battle was won when Jesus prayed. He did not fail in this time of trial or temptation because he did not fail in his praying. I think that deserves our, our real careful attention. Our Lord Jesus did not fail in his testing because he did not fail in his praying. I mean, the conclusion is obvious. If Jesus, if Jesus needs to pray, how much more do people like you and me need to cry out in the face of evil and the evil one that sit before us? In fact, if you think about this story in Luke 22, we're going to look at, at a Bible passage here in just a minute. You might write Matthew 6, 13, because Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 39, it says, He went out and his disciples followed. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Then he went off and prayed earnestly to God and came back and found them to sleep. And then in verse 46, he says, Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray. Why? so that you will not enter into temptation. Those verses right there explain Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the moment of crisis, Jesus passed the test because he did not fail to pray. 
And his words to his disciples are really pretty simple. Before you ever face what the world has to offer, before you ever face or go to battle with Satan, you better make sure that you are prayed up. See, when you pray, you are admitting your weakness. When you don't pray, it's usually because you probably don't take temptation and the evil one very serious. See, this little petition, deliver us from evil, is a prayer against overconfidence. It's a warning not for us to take our own strength for granted. You know, a little fear is really a pretty good thing. I mean, Jesus is saying, folks, you guys are too weak to face the devil on your own, so don't even try. I mean, you're weak, but God is strong. You're in your own strength, and in your own strength, you are absolutely no match for Satan. I remember 20 years ago or so, one of the first mission trips I was on, and we were about halfway across the Atlantic, heading to the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. We were one of the first groups of people invited in to train pastors from all over Russia after the Iron Curtain fell. We're about halfway across the ocean when my uh, good buddy, Dr. Kent Hunter, leans across the aisle of the plane and said, did I tell you that there are a lot of demon-possessed people in Russia? And I said, no. And the two guys sitting next to me who were prayer partners in my, my church, they said, what did he say? I said, oh, he said there are a lot of demon-possessed people in Russia. And they go, well, what are we supposed to do with them if we find them? I leaned over and said, they want to know what they're supposed to do if they find one. And Kent, I remember just laughing. He says, well, I can tell you one thing. They hate the name of Jesus. There's the power right there in the name of Jesus. It's not in your personal power to conquer the devil. See, this petition is really a measure of your spiritual health. Jesus said, when you pray, say, lead me not into temptation. That is a confession of your own weakness. But deliver me from the evil one is a confession of your profound confidence in God's power and God's, uh, in God. I mean, when you pray this way, you find that no matter what happens to you, you're going to get out of it. See, the words of Jesus to Peter seem to go hand in hand with this petition. At the Last Supper, this Bible verse you see on the screen, Jesus is talking about how Peter's going to deny him. He predicted that Peter was also going to be utterly destroyed. He was going to be tempted, he was going to fall, but he was going to ultimately be restored again. And so you see these words. Here's Jesus. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Look at that passage. Three times, three times Jesus calls his name as if to reassure him that even in the midst of his greatest humiliation, the Lord would be with him every step of the way. Now, interestingly enough, the words of Jesus up here, this sifting you as wheat, he actually, in this context, uses those same two definitions of temptation we talked about last week. 
God meant it for something good, but Satan was going to use this temptation for something bad. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. Now, by the way, has asked doesn't mean that the Satan went up to Jesus and said, Hurdy, please, can I have Satan to, or can I have Peter to play around with him a little bit? The Greek is very, very strong. It's a strong demand. Satan demanded of God. Satan had set his eyes on Peter, determined to bring him down by any means possible. Now, the one thing I find comforting in this Bible passage, lets you kind of go, oh my gosh, I wonder if Satan ever comes up and says, I demand Courtney. Yeah. I got news for you. Even if he did, I find some good news in that. And that's that Satan has to ask permission. Someone has said, I think it was Luther who said, Satan is God's devil. I mean, you want to know who's got the chain? God's got the chain. It says he's asked. I think it's comforting that Satan needs to ask God's permission before touching any of his children. And I should also point out in there where it says Satan, or Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. It's interesting, when I looked at that in the original language, you here is not singular. It's plural. What was he talking about? I think he was talking about all the disciples. He said, he's talking to Simon. He's just saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you guys. You guys. And I think Satan wanted to destroy all of the apostles. But he specifically targeted Peter. Now this makes sense when you think about it because Satan often goes after spiritual leaders. You know, if he can get the pastor, if he can get the elders, if he can get the church leaders, you know what he's coming for next. He starts at the top because he knows if he can knock off the leader, others will fail. I used to watch cowboy and Indian movies. What, you know what they always tell? Shoot the chief. <laughs> When the chief is shot, all the little Indians run back and hide in the caves. I mean, his desire to sift God's people by putting them under such pressure that they'll give in and their faith will prove to be nothing. Now, if that's the case, why would God permit his children, you and me, to ever be put in such bad situations? Well, it's, it's precisely so that he can prove that even though we're under difficult circumstances, we can survive if we do what? If we depend upon his grace. In Peter's case, what did that mean? It meant falling, but it meant being restored. I mean, Satan often attacks us at the point of our perceived strength, not at the point of our weakness. Believe me, I know what my weaknesses are. And because I know what my weaknesses are, what, what do I guard most? My weaknesses. Because I have no problem with the strength. Satan's not going to come where you're looking for him. He's going to come where you least expect it. After all, hadn't Peter just said something like this? Even if uh, all the others fall away, not me. I will never fall away. Now, if you'd asked Peter six hours before Maundy Thursday services with communion to name his strong points, 
he probably would have listed boldness and courage right up at the top. He probably would have said, uh, you know, sometimes I put my foot in my mouth, but at least I'm not afraid to speak my mind. I mean, Jesus knows I'll always be there for him. All he needs to do is ask. But when Satan came, it came so swiftly, so suddenly, so secretly, so surreptitiously, so serpent-like, so snake-like, that it caught him completely off guard. And this hard-as-a-rock apostle was like a stick of butter in the Texas sun. By himself, Peter is helpless. In the moment of crisis, Peter failed at the very point where he pledged to be eternally faithful. Now, should that surprise us? No. After all, why should Satan attack you at your point of weakness? I mean, if you have a point of weakness, you're guarding that. What's your strength? But you know, even your strengths. I mean, we tend to make, take those areas for granted. You know, I could say, well, that's not really a problem for me. I have other problems, but that area is, is really not a temptation at all. If that's you, warning, warning, warning. <laughs> Hoist the red flag. If you think you, you're not going to ever be tempted in this area, you know, what was that old show? Warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> there's, there's something coming here. When a person takes any area of his or her life for granted, that they would never, ever be tempted in that way, boy, here comes that sneaky little slithery Satan again, ready for the attack. It happened to Peter. It happened to you. It happened to me sooner or later. But notice what Jesus said. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. You may fall, but your faith is not going to fail. Now, these simple little words, there are at least three little reservoirs of truth here. Here's the very first thing. And they tell us that Jesus knew in advance everything that Peter was about to do. He knew about the denials. He knew about the cursing. He knew about the repeated lies. He knew about the bitter tears that would follow. And he knew what was going to happen when Jesus turns and looks at him. But even more than knowing the bad stuff about Peter, what else did he know in advance? He knew that one day Peter would become one of the most mighty preachers of the gospel in all of the New Testament. He saw everything in Peter's life. He saw the pride. He saw the, the boasting. He saw the shameless denials. He saw the broken heart. But he also saw the repentance. And he saw that brand new resolve to serve the Lord. He sees the same thing about you. Here's the second thing. Jesus' response to Peter's fall is what? To pray for him. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus prays for us in heaven and it is because of his prayers that, to quote Hebrews 7.25, that we are saved to the uttermost. You know, in a kind of a strange sense, our salvation, our relationship to God through Jesus depends on these moment-by-moment -moment prayers of Jesus for his people. I mean, just what an awesome thought that is. I don't know if you can even wrap your brain around something like that. And that's that the Son of God, that Jesus is in heaven, praying not just for us, but he's praying for you by name. Without his prayers, 
we would never make it. Can you wrap your brain around that for a moment? Here's the third thing. Jesus does not pray for Peter to be removed from the temptation. Instead, he's praying that in the midst of Peter's fall, in the midst of Peter's shame, that Peter would not lose his faith altogether. Do you remember that passage? It says, Father, Satan wants to sift him to destroy him altogether. Please don't let that happen. I think that's an amazing revelation about God's purposes for your life and for mine. This explains why we need to go through so much hard times. I mean, many times, God intends that we would actually face the truth of our own personal failures so that we could learn to trust in the Lord and to trust in Him alone. Remember the tail end of that passage we had on the screen before? He says, he, he prayed that He might sift you, but I'm praying for you. He adds this, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. You notice that little word, when and when you turn back. It's, that's, that's a word of grace right there. Jesus knew all about Peter's coming fall, but more than that, he saw that Peter would one day return to the Lord and be stronger than ever. Uh, there's, I think there are two wonderful, encouraging thoughts there. One is that Jesus never, ever criticized him. And he also never, ever gave up on him. You know, Jesus knew about Peter's denial way before he ever did it. He knew what Peter would do. He knew how he'd react. He knew the kind of man Peter would be afterwards. That's why he said, when, not if, but when you turn back. Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus actually had more faith in Peter than Peter had. Than Peter had in Jesus, even. He knew Peter had important work to do. He said, when, when you get through all of this, Peter strengthen your brothers. I, that's an important principle here. Yeah, if you've ever broken a bone, uh, you know that the bone that's broken often becomes stronger after it's healed. It's the same of like a, a piece of rope that breaks. I mean, in the hands of a master splicer, that rope, once repaired, often becomes stronger where it broke than it was before. And the, the same is true of us. We fall, we fail, we get broken. That's what sin is all about. But we recover and we become stronger than ever before. And guess what? Then we can, with that sin, that new healing, I mean, read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we now encourage others. What does it say that, you know, all that strength, everything that God gives us when we're hurting, we now can go and share with other people who are hurting in the same way. That's why some of you who've been through, man, I don't care what the tough times are, but when you've been through it, I, I, I see Jack. Everybody knows what Jack's been through. And Joyce, by the way. You've been through it, Jack. Second Corinthians says that whatever God did to encourage you in that journey, you encourage other people same way. Now, it may not necessarily be they had that same operation or whatever, but, you know, when you've seen the hand of God touch your life, there you go. A lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I learned that a long time ago. I, I, I really try not to break any confidence, but I remember doing this to one lady in the first church who came in and told me about some form of cancer she had. And uh, I prayed for her and so we encouraged her, but I happened to be walking in a store a week later and ran into this other lady and she came to me and she told me 
Pastor, I don't know who to talk to, but uh, I just want you to know I have this form of cancer. And, and I said, oh, you really need to talk to Irene. I'll tell you, about two days later, Irene was in my office. Pastor, how could you tell anybody I had that? So I apologized. But guess what? Irene was able to minister to that person in her greatest need and help her. I'm not saying that to excuse my, my blunder in that case, but God still works out things for the good. You come out better. You come out stronger. I mean, think about Peter. Never again would Peter brag on himself like he used to. Uh, never again would he presume to be better than all the other disciples. I mean, never again would he be so cocky and arrogant and self-confident. All of that was gone. And, and I think that's a good thing that God allows that to happen to us. I've always thought, you know, I didn't become a pastor until 25 years ago. Some of you probably thought, well, what were you doing those first 60-some years, just goofing off? No, basically what, what I was doing those first 40-some years was allowing God, not even allowing, but having God knock all the rough edges off me. I mean, you think I'm rough now. It takes a while sometimes to get God, God's got to shape you up and get you ready to do whatever he really wants you to do. I mean, failure never seems like a good thing when it's happening. But you know what failure does? Failure strips all that junk off of you. Now, if God knows our failures even before we do, why doesn't he stop us? Why doesn't he stop us? When he knows, he's looking at John, he goes, uh-oh, John, 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 John. Pull him back, pull him back. I'll tell you why. There are probably three possible answers. One of them, this, this is like, you're going to, like with, J, with like Jacob's limp here, but to show us the depth of our sin. I mean, sometimes when we're up at the top of the cliff, we don't see properly. We've got to be brought down the valley to see the depth of our sin. I think it's also to purge us from our pride. I don't think Peter ever forgot the night that he denied Jesus. I mean, never again did he boastfully claim how courageous he was going to be. And I think third, to prepare us for the greater work. God's got to knock us down a few notches, if you will, every once in a while to prepare us for doing what he really wants us to do in life. I mean, God uses broken people. Let me give you some Bible examples. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about his wife twice. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Paul persecuted the church. Peter denied Jesus. God uses broken people like that. And here's an amazing thought. Peter did more for Jesus after he fell than he did before. I mean, before he was loud and obnoxious. Afterwards, he was the great preacher in the Bible. I mean, think about Peter in his fault. Think about what Peter lost. He lost his vanity. He lost his pride. He lost his self-confidence. He lost his impulsiveness. He lost his unreliability. But what did he gain in return? Uh, after his restoration, he was given a sense of humility. He had a new confidence in God. He had tested courage. He had a new determination to serve Jesus. He had a willingness to use his experience in this new venture. The things he lost, he didn't really need them. The things he gained could not have come and come through any other way. And in the same way, God, what does he do? He redeems our mistakes by removing all that stuff we don't need 
and gives us stuff we do need so that we can serve him better. See, when the Lord looks at you and me, I don't know what you think. You know, if you think that the Lord looks at you and is embarrassed that he made you or that he's angry or whatever, God doesn't do that. When God looks at you and me, he sees beyond our failures. He sees to sees all the way down to our loyalty beneath. He sees our pain. He sees our tears. He sees our earnest desire to please him. He sees us in our faltering steps as we attempt to follow him. And I tell you, I, I for one, I mean, somebody asked me one time, says, Pastor, did you ever really wish you kind of knew everybody's faults in church so you could better deal with them? You think about that. Would you like to know everybody else's faults? I wouldn't. I'm glad I don't know the truth about y'all. <laughs> I'm glad you don't know the truth about me. Now, let's face it. We are a bunch of broken down people. It's just that some of, some of you hide it better than others. There's a little bit of Peter in all of us. And that's why this story of Peter actually speaks to us in such a great level. I mean, what should we learn from these lessons of Christ? Just three things real quick. One of them is just the value of humility. The value of humility. If Jesus' hand-picked man would deny him, then none of us is beyond temptation. Now, Peter was not a bad man. Peter was just a weak man. Peter was just a sinful man. He did not realize how weak he really was until it was too late. I think a little humility is always in order. You're not as hot as you think you are, and neither am I. Here's the second thing. It's the need for patience with one another. I mean, sometimes, this really bugs me sometimes, you know, sometimes we just are absolutely stunned when we see fellow believers sin. I don't know why you should be so stunned. I mean, what, you don't? I mean, sometimes we act surprised when our Christian friends disappoint us. Uh, maybe we should be surprised when they don't. But remember, even on our best days, every last one of us still sins. Every last one of us, even on our best days, disappoints ourselves and other people. And it behooves all of us, I'm just saying, is maybe, maybe what God is trying to teach us here is to learn to cut everybody a little slack from time to time. Wouldn't hurt. Here's the third thing. I, this is the thing I, I like best, is, is the magnificence of God's grace. This is one of the hardest of all Christian doctrines, to, again, to wrap your brain around, because it goes against that deeply felt need to somehow prove to God that we are worthy of what he wants in our lives. I mean, grace says, quite honestly, you're not worthy, but I love you anyway. Now, that's kind of hard to hear, but, and it's hard to believe, and sometimes it's very hard to extend to other people. God loves you, so do I. I mean, I, I've had people over the years, Pastor, do we need to love everybody? Yes. <laughs> yes, you do. It's a requirement. You shall love everybody. Even so-and-so. Even so-and-so. Now, do you need to like what they do? No. I mean, even God does that. He God, he God loves the sinner, hates the sin. Got to love everybody. Sometimes the grace of God is hard to extend to other Christians. That's why, you want to spend a nice Sunday afternoon, I mean, meditate on God's grace. 
Think about God's grace. Rest in God's grace. Rejoice in God's grace. Talk about God's grace. Share God's grace. Sing about God's grace. Pray about God's grace. Just wallow in God's grace. Ought to give you a little comfort. You know, sometimes we are so such easy prey for Satan. And that's because we sometimes take him way too lightly. And sometimes we give up way too soon because we forget that Jesus himself is praying for us. Praying that his victory might eventually become our victory. That ought to give us enormous comfort when we pray that little prayer, deliver us from evil. The God who calls us gives us whatever we need whenever we need it. He's not brought us this far just to watch us fail. I mean, even your darkest moments are part of God's plan for your life. And before the story is finally told, our prayers can be answered and we're going to be delivered from evil, the evil one once for all. But until then, what does God say? Stand your ground and fight because the Lord is on your side. Let's pray. Almighty God, forgive us for fighting our battles in the flesh. Forgive us for taking Satan so lightly as to think that we are an even match for him. Teach us to trust in you completely, to believe that Jesus has won the victory, and to move us from victory unto victory. Teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation, that we might eventually be delivered from the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen.